It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome back to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. I'm Bridget Stump, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Lindsay Silverberg. Hi, guys. Today on Traumatize, we will be discussing an often misunderstood topic within the criminal legal system, restorative justice. I'm super excited about our discussion. I want to just preface the conversation by saying that at MVRDC, we believe in survivor-defined justice. It is a core philosophy at the center of our approach in all of the work that we do to support survivors of trauma. Respecting the autonomy of the survivor often means leaving our own definition of what justice should look like to us at the door and instead holding space for survivors to determine the pathway forward that is best for them based on their own unique circumstances, lived experiences, and identities. So I would love to invite all of our listeners to approach this conversation with a very open mind, whatever your preconceived notions about what justice is or what it was taught to be to you. Let's be open-minded as we move into reimagining what justice can be. And we're going to jump right in. And Lindsay's going to do a quick intro here. Thanks, Bridget. Our guest today is Seema Gajwani. Seema is Special Counsel for Juvenile Justice Reform and Chief of the Restorative Justice Section at the D.C. Office of the Attorney General. She oversees juvenile justice reform initiatives focusing on diversion, restorative justice, and improved data collection and analysis, which you know we love. (laughs) Prior to this position, Seema ran the criminal justice program at the Public Welfare Foundation in Washington, D.C., funding efforts to improve criminal and juvenile justice systems across the country with a focus on pre-trial detention, reform, and improved prosecution decision-making. Seema started her career as a trial attorney at the D.C. Public Defender Service, where she represented juvenile and adult defendants for six years. Welcome, Seema. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. You're like a real local superhero. <laughs> Shiro, I'll call you a Shiro. And I feel like I'm fanning out a little bit that Seema's in this room with us. And I know it's all of our favorite things, like so many criminal cool legal reform, data, <laughs> data, uh, transformative healing, really recognizing, you know, we believe, Seema, that the existing response systems to things that cause harm like violence are not adequate to meet the diverse needs that survivors have based on their complex lived experiences, the intersections of that and their identity, trauma, right? Trauma exposure and unaddressed trauma. So you are just the person I'm so excited to talk to. And before we dive in, because you can tell I am ready to go, right off the top, I want to get shared language so that people can feel really connected in the conversation we're going to have. Seema, tell me, what is restorative justice And how do you think its approaches might be similar or even different from another concept that's commonly referred to as transformative justice? Okay, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I love NVRDC. I love both of you. And so I'm really honored to be asked. 
I think I'll start about restorative justice with its roots. Uh, It is a practice that has its origins in several kind of native indigenous cultures in the Americas, in Western Africa, in New Zealand with the Maori culture. There are principles of restorative justice that are seen in truth and reconciliation commissions from South Africa and Rwanda. So its heritage is deep and ancient and beautiful. And one of the core principles that it embodies is that community can solve problems. And so in what I understand its purest form, it is meant to be held by community and done in community by community, because it's community trying to address harm and conflict. And and so what I do is in many ways quite a deviation from the origins and the principles of pure restorative justice, because what I do is I run a restorative justice program that is not in community. It is in the criminal legal system, and not only in the criminal legal system, It is within the prosecutor's office. So it's like the belly of the beast. And so in many ways, it is in contradiction to some of the the core principles of restorative justice and its origins and the people who believe deeply in it. And so I just want to acknowledge that up front. Um, There are reasons that we believe it's important to do what we do where we do it. But it's it's important to, to first, I think, understand where it's different from what a lot of people think about when they think of restorative justice. And also, I'm quite a student of it. I actually don't have a long history with restorative justice. I came to learn of it deeply only, you know, five, seven years ago. And so I'm still learning myself. But what I understand is that restorative justice is this kind of umbrella term under which there are many different types of practices And one of the types of practices is what we do, and that's considered restorative justice conferencing. And restorative justice conferencing typically involves the attempt to repair crime or conflict, like an incident. Mm -hmm. There are restorative justice circles, there's family group conferencing, there's victim offender mediation, there are tons of different types of restorative justice. We decided that if we were going to try and transform our criminal and juvenile legal systems, that the the type of restorative justice that would be best suited for doing that, since it is typically about incidents of crime and conflict, was conferencing. And transformative justice is another really kind of brilliant and innovative version, I think, of restorative justice. I'm not super well versed in it, but my understanding is that it's meant to not only address the harm of, of an incident or interpersonal relations, but also incorporate addressing systemic harms and uh, transformative justice is deeply rooted in community and outside of systems. Well, thank you for that. And what's coming up for me, Seema, is this really beautiful complexity of what you're bringing into this conversation, right? You're a former public defender now sitting in a prosecutor's office. One of the most important things for me in the language that I use in talking about trauma is that we have created false binaries, particularly within the criminal legal system, of who is the person that's experienced trauma, often thinking about the direct victim or a a witness, depending on how they're situated in a particular matter. What we actually know in the research 
is that folks who've experienced trauma that goes unaddressed, whether that's generational, whether that's racial trauma, whether that's an incident like you're describing harm, often within the household, that that unaddressed trauma causes, not that they themselves will be more likely to cause trauma, but they are actually mathematically more likely to either experience it or cause it in the future. And so it really has created for me this buy-in mentality to how incredibly important it is to create equity in how we address trauma within broader community systems, structures. And the fact that you're bringing all of these, what we would often find as almost like paradoxical ideas into a space where you're thinking about healing is really beautiful. Yeah. I love that you talk about healing because that is really in essence the core of restorative justice. And the beauty of restorative justice, I think, is that the healing isn't meant to only be offered to one side. It is encompassed in the dignity that is afforded all participants who participate in restorative justice. With restorative justice conferencing, at its its core, what's happened is there's been some sort of rupture in the social kind of expectations and norms. There's been um, a harm that's caused a relationship that's been hurt, an expectation that's been undermined. And so something has to happen to try and repair it. And so you bring the parties who've been impacted together. You create a space where nobody, I think getting, Bridget, to what you're getting at, nobody is is more powerful necessarily than anybody else. We sit in a circle with the facilitator, with the person who's been harmed, the person who's responsible from the, for the harm, all their supporters, able to talk equally. In a courtroom, you've got the judge on a big bench. You've got the prosecutor who's at the table. You've got the defense attorney who's in a suit. You've got the probation officer who's got all the information. And then you've got other parties who are actually the ones who've been directly impacted, who are in many ways silenced and and made small and not given space. And so restorative justice, its effort is to give agency and dignity and humanity to everyone. And in that context, the expectation is, and what we see, is that in a space where people feel like they're seen, even if they've caused harm, they are more able to feel safe enough to be vulnerable, to talk about what they did wrong, what they wish they had done better, what they hope to be in the future. And that, it turns out, is what people who have been harmed deeply need oftentimes in order to heal. And what I have found, which I think is also equally as beautiful, is that sometimes the person who's been harmed feels and becomes most empowered in the ability to show grace and compassion to somebody who's harmed them. And that there appears to be nothing that can give somebody who's harmed, in some circumstances at least, as much feeling of healing and closure and empowerment than that. Wow. I have a lot of thoughts about that, and Go I'm taking it. up a lot of space that um, Lindsay has. I know you're up next. <laughs> um, I think what's coming up for me is the reality of the criminal legal system. And we devised a system, let's just honor and acknowledge that it was racist by design, right? So there's already these built-in inequities and and how people will experience and intersect with it. And those apply to survivors of violence in the same way they apply to those being accused of harm that is often not talked about in the same way because we give so much power. This concept of power that you've talked about 
it's so directly tied to trauma healing, right? Like how do we create power with that survivor as opposed to power over them? We de- So naturally we design a response system to harm where they have no power. That doesn't make any sense when you think about the healing principles that we've talked about around creating agency choice to really feel that sense of empowerment and dignity. So the naming of power, Seema, feels really important to me. I also think we see this in the informal resolution context in Title IX proceedings, that we have often designed response systems to harm like the criminal legal system, where the person who's caused harm is disincentivized to take and acknowledge, to take uh, responsibility, right? We actually discourage them from doing that. And when we look at what does healing require, often, and we've seen this with survivors that we have watched go through the full restorative justice process, I've seen beautiful moments of healing of really deep traumatic experiences like sexual violence, where the person who's caused harm acknowledges it, is asked for forgiveness. The other person, as you described, and being able to accept that feels heard, seen, understood. And I just have to say, someone recently helped me really grasp with the idea or really grapple with this idea that it is one thing to say to you, I understand. It is quite a different thing to feel understood. And when we think about restorative justice, only the person who has caused harm and only the person who's experienced it knows whether or not they're understood. And creating the space makes that much more likely than a system that's going to say, oh, I understand what you need. I know what the sentencing guidelines, you know, it's very different. And so I'm going to turn it over to Lindsay, who has a very important question other than just my thoughts that I'm really excited about to share. One thing I want to note is the the language that we're using in this discussion that I've heard you say is the person who was harmed versus what we would traditionally refer to as a victim or the person who caused harm, who we would traditionally refer to as a defendant. And I think that that's just an important note for those of you listening, that this is very intentional language that's used in the restorative justice space to take away some of, of those ideas that Bridget was just talking about, that um, where our criminal legal system was founded. And so I think what it brings for me is that, you know, we're talking about how powerful this is. And the work that you do is really specifically focused on juvenile cases. Was that something you were always passionate about? Like, why juvenile cases? Yes, both of you have made such great points. Why juvenile cases? So I work for the D.C. uh, Attorney General, Carl Racine. And our office, the Office of the Attorney General, has exclusive jurisdiction over all juvenile prosecution. D.C. is unusual because we have a bifurcated system and the adult prosecutor is the federal entity, the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so it was fortuitous, frankly, that I had the opportunity to work in exclusively the juvenile justice space. I think that it is politically a better place to start something that is so different, (laughs) something like using restorative justice as an alternative to the traditional court processing system. But I don't believe that restorative justice is uh, something that should only be used for young people. In fact, probably the most rigorous study on restorative justice took place over 10 years across two different countries, the UK and Australia, and 12 sites and 12 sites using restorative justice. And these different sites were all funded by kind of the same funding stream. 
but were different in that some of the sites dealt with juveniles, some adults, some both, some with property crimes, some with violent crimes, some both. And one of the big findings of the study, which was a randomized control trial, so it was like the gold standard of research, was that restorative justice, as opposed to traditional court processing, saw better recidivism outcomes for people who engaged in it. But actually, they saw more pronounced recidivism reductions for adults. And they saw more pronounced recidivism reductions for the use of restorative justice with a violent crime than property crime. So, Lindsay, and I have so many thoughts about this because in some ways the connection to me with like our understanding of trauma is like our human capacity for sympathy. And I mean sympathy intentionally. Like it's much easier to be sympathetic towards what we perceive in society to be vulnerable folks that experience harm from violence that often tends to be the elderly children. And so we often see this in, in how people who have caused harm are treated as sympathetic, right? And so you're right. I think politically there is this natural bend to like give second chances to young people when in reality, when we think about the fully developed um, frontal lobe and our ability to control impulses and learn and recognize our behavior and make that often often happens after the age of 24. Right. So when we, we sort of look at the complexity of the science and how we're infusing restorative justice principles or modalities into systems, we should be thinking about it much more broadly. But politically, it hasn't been as palatable, if you will. There's I, also a lot of assumptions, like very paternalistic assumptions that survivors who are adults and offenders or people who've caused harm who are adults that they don't want to engage in this type of system, right? We're not giving them a choice. I think there's been a lot of pushback in the sexual violence community around this concept of restorative justice, feeling as if it is not empowering for survivors when it's not empowering to not ask, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, yes. You know, I just wanted to get back to one of the great points that you made, I think, Bridget, about our current system and it's how it was fashioned and I think the truth is that our, our, you know, quote unquote, justice system was created for the purposes of trial, right? It was, it was created to identify, it was created to make sure that the process of finding out guilt or innocence or guilt or, or lack of guilt and get to the truth was going to be a fair one. It's actually quite a brilliant system if it is envisioned as being appropriate for trial because there are all these procedural protections that are built in to protect the person who's charged from the the huge power of the state bringing these charges against them, which mean that the victim is in many ways taken out of the process. It is sterilized. It is isolated. You know, the person who is charged with the crime doesn't speak, right? Lawyers do all of the talking. It protects them from incriminating themselves. You have to bring about this evidence. The evidence has to be in many ways, seen as kind of neutral and sanitized and therefore more able to be trusted. But the truth is, is that throughout our system across the country, only 5% of cases at best end up in trial and 95% of them end up disposed of through negotiations and pleas. And the truth is, is that I see the whole point of our justice system as it should be as trying to change behavior of people who have caused harm as trying to support the healing of people who've been harmed and trying to make our communities safe. And the existing justice system fails dramatically on all accounts. It is a terrible mechanism for changing behavior. And we know that not only because of anecdote, 
um, because we see it all around us. But also, you know, the most recent Department of Justice BJ statistics show that the average recidivism rate of people who've been through the system and incarcerated is 70 percent. Victims of crime in some studies have identified that the second worst ex- part of the experience of being victimized was going through the criminal legal system mm-hmm. as a survivor or a victim of crime. And our communities are no more safe because if the type of incarceration and punitive system that we've created is supposed to keep us safe, it is the most robust in the world exponentially. And our country continues to be one of the more, uh, the least safe. And so, you know, we failed at the things that should be the core purposes of our system. And I think it gets back to some of the, some things I think of with respect to restorative justice. A, a long time ago, I watched this clip of Brene Brown before I knew what a celebrity she was. <laughs> and she talks about shame versus guilt. Uh, I'm sure you guys know this. And she talks Damn ab- you, Steve. <laughs> when she talks, she does the shame video and she, her husband's name is Steve. Uh-huh. And she drops the cup of coffee and it spills. And she's like, I blame Steve mm-hmm. because he came home late last night and I needed two cups of coffee. But like we have this instinctual drive to find someone to blame uh-huh. when things are hard. So when you say shame, I always hear Brene Brown say, damn you, Steve. <laughs> the clip that I watched, which actually was shown to me in the context of a restorative justice training, was her talking about the fact that shame has all of these perverse correlations, that um, shame leads to things like harming others, harming self depression, addiction, risky sexual behavior, isolation, whereas guilt is different. She says guilt is conversely related to all of those things. And she says it's it's adaptive. Though uncomfortable and difficult to maneuver, shame is adaptive. It is productive because what it says is I have done something that is not who I am and who I want to be. And when you hold up what it is that you did or you failed to do against who it is that you want to be, that process is a very productive one. Whereas shame says, I am a bad person. Guilt says, I did a bad thing. I'm not a bad person. And in many ways, our criminal justice system, our juvenile justice system, really the core features of it, not necessarily by intention, but certainly in reality are shame and isolation and criminalization and stigmatization. And those are some of the things that the like research on violence talks about as being drivers of violence. The things that drive violence are shame, isolation, lack of economic opportunities, and exposure to violence. And you think about the young people who are in our juvenile justice system, the adults in our criminal justice system, and what our system does for them, to them, certainly when they're incarcerated, shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and lack of economic opportunities. We are driving violence with our system. And after, right? When and they after. get out, there's sure. not the supports. They have they have different rights and access to things when they They're get saddled, out. They're saddled by yeah. all of these collateral consequences. Whereas, so restorative justice, really the features of it are of redemption, of I did something bad, but I am sorry. I wish I did it differently. And if I could do it over again, I would. Oh. And that's how you learn, right? That's what you, when you have to learn from your mistakes, What it means is you first take responsibility for what those mistakes are. Are you acknowledging what did I do that was wrong and what would I have done differently now, knowing how badly it hurt somebody? And what am I going to do in the future so that it never happens again? So I'm not put in this situation again. So I don't find myself in this situation again. That's what restorative justice is about. And it it turns out that's very effective at behavior change, which is what we should be. 
focused on. Again, you're bringing up for me complexity and nuance. Like I live in nuance and that can be a very hard way to experience me because I'm like constantly seeing these connections really quickly. I'm sure for people like Lindsay and Joey are like folks that are in proximity to me, that can be very overwhelming. But what's coming up for me is when you talk about shame and the antidote to shame is connection, right? But what we do both with folks who've caused harm and for folks that experienced it, who we know are now questioning, who can I trust? Who is safe? What comes next? We almost create a taboo around even knowing where to go for help if you've experienced harm, especially if it's in your family or in a community, right? And so we both see the antidote to shame in all these different places is connection, but we put people into places and systems that create disconnection. And this is a little bit of a pivot, Seema, but what comes up for me is thinking about the confirmation hearings for Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. She did receive a lot of criticism for her sentence reductions and some of her cases that were perceived as showing too much leniency. And the idea of having empathy for those who've committed harm seems to, at least in, in that moment for me, it felt perceived as if it came with a cost of accountability. What are some of the ways in which we can think about restorative justice as balances between those two concerns, accountability, right, when harm has been caused, but also empathy? How does RJ sort of get us to the intersection of those two really important values? That's a great question. Danielle Sered, in her book, Until We Reckon, and in her work and speaking, speaks a lot about how we have conflated punishment and accountability. We think that if we punish somebody, that is holding them accountable. But true accountability is actually taking responsibility for your behavior. And that actually doesn't happen in our justice system, right? In our justice system where we do a really, really good job of punishing people, hurting them back, what we don't do a good job of is having them take responsibility for their behavior. Because, you know, even in the court process where a person takes a guilty plea, it's, it's after weeks, months sometimes of lawyers negotiating and trying to get to argue about what's the best plea deal, sometimes, you know, posturing around going to trial and you don't have the evidence and we can beat this. And it's a legal process, a plea offer, a plea, uh, taking a plea. You know, it's when I was a public defender, it's leaning over to your client when the judge says the thing that, you know, we need to cue our client to and we whisper in their ear, now's the time that you say, yes, I plead guilty. And they say, okay, yes, I plead guilty. That's not justice. That's not accountability. It doesn't mean that for them. And it certainly doesn't mean that for the person that they've harmed. It barely means that for the lawyers, right? Even the judges don't believe it. But what's true is when we talk to young people who've committed crime, even young people who've committed very serious crime, Almost always, we talked to them very shortly after this happened, after this event of some sort happened. And they're often like, yeah, I really shouldn't have done that, right? <laughs> like people's first response when they mess up is to admit it. And what we do with the, pro with the legal process is we wait months and months and months after they've had a defense attorney try and coach them into all of these things. And then we say, do you admit it? And that's not meaningful then. And we don't believe them. So even if it is meaningful, it doesn't do anything for anybody. Getting back to your question, I think what's interesting about empathy and accountability is I think they're deeply connected. What we find, so I'll, t I'll tell you an example. My very first case was a pretty low-level case where a bunch of kids did 
like a, we called them a flash mob at a 7-Eleven. So a bunch of kids run into a 7-Eleven. They basically like take a bunch of stuff. They destroy the place. They pull down products. You know, the, the clerks are freaking out. They may throw stuff at the clerks and they like rush out and steal stuff, you know, make a big mess, steal stuff. They, there was like a, a phase where there were a bunch of these happening and it was a bunch of kids. And so I got one of these cases. They had identified five of the kids. And, you know, as I had been trained with restorative justice, I went to talk to all of the kids and I asked them about what they did and how they felt. And one of the things we asked the kids when we talked to them is who was impacted by what you did? And every single kid, because I was, they were all came from the same school. So I went to the school and I was just meeting them one by one in a room at the school. And literally every single kid, when I asked, so who was impacted by what happened? They said, well, I was impacted. I, you know, got arrested. My mom was impacted. She's super mad. She had to come and leave work and pick me up. And now she's really mad at me. I can't play basketball anymore. I was told I can't play basketball. I've now got to go check in with the probation officer. They make me drug test twice a week. So yeah, I was impacted. My mom was impacted. And I was like, anybody else maybe impacted by the crime that you committed? And they're like, no, I don't know. I can't think of anybody else. And then like one after another, the same thing happened with each one of these boys. And I couldn't believe it. They couldn't even think outside of themselves about who was impacted. And so, you know, ultimately we brought them together with their their supporters and family members. And we brought this young man who was an immigrant from Ethiopia. He had a new wife and a little baby. They had put all of their life savings and their parents' life savings into buying this 7-Eleven franchise. And it was like ransacked one night and they got the phone call from the store. And because they didn't have a babysitter, but they didn't want to be alone, all of them rushed, you know, the, the wife, the husband, the baby all rushed to this store and they look at their store and all the damage. And the man is sitting in this conference talking about it. The conference is the dialogue. And he's talking about how he felt when he got the phone call and rushing and them taking this little baby who was asleep, but they wanted to take the baby anyway because the, the wife didn't want to be left alone and she wanted to see what happened. And he says, I, I walked into the store and what I felt like was that somebody ransacked my home. And he's telling this story in front of all these people. And one of the boys was like a little fidgety. And he literally jumped out of his chair because it was a big circle. There are five kids and family members, a lot of people. He jumped out of his chair and went halfway across the circle and said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that, that I did this. And all of the boys and the parents felt so bad and the boys all felt so bad. It was, it was the experience of hearing how badly somebody was hurt by your actions, which was what built the empathy that allowed for accountability and then created a space for real authentic conversations about like how badly this behavior affected people, what I did wrong, how I need to think about this in the future and who I want to be. And that was the conversation that took up a lot, you know, a couple of hours in that restorative justice conference. And it ended up being that like the parents agreed to pay restitution to this man and the kids agreed to do work in order to to fund it, if not pay for all of it. They agreed to talk about this kind of thing in their school to their peers. And that's what this person wanted. And that's accountability, right? Is acknowledging what you did, feeling bad about it, and then changing your behavior and showing that you're going to change your behavior. But that wasn't possible with these kids before empathy. It had to have empathy involved. Bridget and I are both having the same reaction about how powerful that is to hear that story. Thank you for sharing that because I think it, it really 
puts a fine point on how impactful this system can be um, if we allow it to and if we have people like you championing that for them. I think a big part of this disconnect between advocates of restorative justice and the critics of it stems from how we view the role of the criminal legal system and how it should function in society. And it seems to come down to a person's particular view of the system existing for either the purpose of reform or as a punitive tool for retribution. Can you give us what your view is on the purpose of the criminal legal system and how that's come to be informed by your work? Yeah, I think about that a lot. I think about what we are really trying to get at, certainly in our juvenile justice system, that we, I think, have lost sight of. And I think that the truth is when we think about young people who make mistakes, and if we think about them in the context of our own children, what we would want from a system is one that helped them learn from their mistakes. That's what we would want. We would want to give them an opportunity to build empathy and consequential thinking, to learn from their mistakes, to change their behavior. And we would want to give them the support that they would need to do that if support is needed. And that's not what our system is about. Our system is about how do we hurt people because we've been hurt. What I heard you saying, Seema, was, again, it's one thing to say to someone, oh, I understand. It is another thing for the person that was harmed through that event to actually be understood. And that's what I, I have seen restorative justice to it. It creates a place where people who've experienced really hard things and people who've caused really hard moments all come out of that feeling under more deeply understood connection. And so I can't believe that we have actually gone over time. And so we're going to move into a closing where I want to just give an opportunity for folks who might be listening and still feel a little bit on the fence about their taught notions of justice, maybe what they see the value of the criminal legal system bringing to communities. And is there anything else, Seema, that you would add for folks who might still have questions about whether or not restorative justice can can work? And is it taking the right kind of approach within the criminal legal system? What is the kind of magic wand that you would wave to educate someone who still maybe has doubts about whether or not restorative justice can achieve that balance of accountability and empathy? Well, I it's so hard to talk about restorative justice and to explain it and explain its value. It's a struggle that I think is is one of the obstacles to real transformation and um, institutionalization of something like this, which is so kind of relational into a system that is quite rigid. But I find that telling stories is is most effective, and I'll tell I'll try and quickly tell one more story. We had a case where a couple of young people got involved in a conflict with somebody on the metro. They were behaving badly. It was an adult that they got in conflict with. There was a lot of like like there was a lot of violence. And at some point, um, the person who got, the, the got harmed, the victim, was pushed on the tracks and could have died, but didn't, but also had like a really gory injury because of the, the fall and breaking a leg. And it was just really, really bad. Very, very scary. Super traumatic. Led to months of surgeries, lost jobs, lost wages, real, real harm. And in this case, the prosecutors actually offered restorative justice as an alternative um, within the, the plea negotiations. And all of the young people chose to do restorative justice except for one because that one 
young person's lawyer said, I want to go to trial. We think we can beat this at trial or we can get a better offer. We can get a better result through trial. And so we had to hold on the restorative justice process. The victim was also on board with doing restorative justice. We held on that and they all went to trial. And what happened in the court was the government put on its evidence. The victim spoke about what happened to him, all of the damage that was caused. Police officers spoke about the arrest, all of that stuff. And then um, the government rested its case and the judge said, okay, let's take a break. It's in superior court. There's a bathroom on every floor. Everyone got up to go to the bathroom. And in the bathroom, the victim, the man who was hurt, was um, in there washing his hands. And the young person who was the respondent, the juvenile term for defendant, walked into the bathroom. And they looked at each other and the young person said, I'm so sorry for what I did. And the victim said, thanks, I appreciate that. And then he, you know, the kid went to the bathroom, the victim walked out, went and sat by the prosecutor waiting for the judge to call the case again. And he turned to the prosecutor and he said, you know, I don't think that kid is that bad of a person. You know, he just apologized to me in the bathroom. And the prosecutor was like, he did what? Because she's eyeing a win, right? And so she's like, judge, I need to reopen my case. She called the case again. They reopened the case. She put the victim back on the stand. It turns out there was a cop in the bathroom who overheard everything. She put him on the stand. They testified statement against interest about what happened. And the defense attorney is just demoralized. She's deflated. She's like, I just lost my case. She's super mad. And the judge who is familiar with restorative justice was like, this is ridiculous. Stop this right now. Go figure it out. Do restorative justice. And so we ended up doing restorative justice with all of the boys. And it was like, you know, a fantastic conference. And I remember this particular boy in the conference said to the man towards the end, I, f- I feel like I wish I could spend time with you because I've already learned so much from you. I'm so impressed with you and I've learned so much. And I know I'm a kid, but I think one day we would have been friends. And the facilitator said, well, what have you learned from him? And the boy said, I've learned that you can forgive anything. And I say that to say that what happens in court is theater and it is lawyers who are in battle to win. And what needed to happen in this case is that this boy needed to apologize and this victim needed to forgive him. And ultimately, that's what happened, but only because restorative justice was available. And the lawyers were not concerned about that. That's not what there was, their concern was. And that's, I think, a good encapsulation of why our system is so off track about what we really need to be doing and how while restorative justice isn't perfect and it's not for every case, it is better when it's appropriate. It is better at getting what we want, which is people learning from their mistakes, changing their behavior, and people who've been harmed being given a chance to heal. And I think at the core, right, it's about choice. It's about everyone in that process choosing this And that is one of the best practices of being trauma responsive. I do want to acknowledge what Lindsay has said. You are a champion of this in in our region. You've been recognized in lots of ways. I have to do a little shout out to your boss, Attorney General Racine. He's been such a champion of you and your team's work. You know, your team coming to a trauma education that we were able to just sort of be in community with you all. It was one of just a really beautiful moment for me personally. And I just have to tell you how impactful I know in this work, you might not get to see those those beautiful conferences happen daily, but the impact you're having in young people's lives and those who've experienced harm in our broader community, making this a conversation that can be real in people's lives is really valuable. And we really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you so much.
So thank you for joining us on this episode of Traumatize. Special thanks to our guest, Seema. And as always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes. You can find us at hashtag Traumatize, that's T-I-E-S, and of course, tag at NVRDC on Twitter and LinkedIn to join the conversation. Of course, you can also subscribe, rate, and review Traumatize Podcasts wherever you listen. Be well. And next time, we will do more untangling. This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.